Take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Revelation, the 20th chapter. Revelation chapter 20. Our time in this book is coming to an end. It's not done yet. We have come to the climax of this book of the Revelation, but we have not come to the end because with the climax of Jesus coming again, we have all that Christ will do when he comes to rule and reign and what that will mean. And uh, it is really a joyous, joyous thing that we have before us this morning, a joyous thing to look forward to. And uh, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, it's a delight to be able to go over today the millennium. And I would like to consider it in this frame from outside to on-site dominion. From outside to on-site dominion. Let's pray and ask God to use this in our hearts. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we, use, we pray that it would be a sharp, two-edged sword, that it would work in us holiness. We pray that it would cause our hearts to rejoice in you, to look to you, to have great confidence in you. Help us to trust what this says and to believe with all of our hearts what Christ will come to do and what he will do and how he will have the glory in all the earth. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Until COVID, we didn't realize how much could be done remotely. Many people who have worked in the office now work from home. Many children who got on the bus every day now are taught from home. Local churches who met together for Bible study have continued to do so, but they do so from home. We've all wanted things to get back to being normal. And that is because we don't like the distance. Distance has been hard on relationships. And we long for the time that the pandemic will be a thing of the past. Now, in a sense, the churches of Asia Minor felt the same way when it comes to their relationship with Jesus Christ. For example, the church of Ephesus rightly understood that God had graciously raised them up with Christ and had seated them in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. But they also looked forward to the day that they would be with Christ in person. You see, in person is much better than in the body, away from the Lord, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Or what Paul said to the Philippians, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, no longer in the body, but instead present with Him. And it's this in-person experience that is promised by Jesus Christ to the churches of Asia Minor. All the way back in chapter 3, Jesus promised the church of Sardis, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. 
to the church of Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. You see, God's intention for salvation isn't simply that a remote connection between the Savior and the saved is established. God planned an in-person, glorious, happy connection. And that future happy state isn't going to come with a simple flip of a cosmic switch. It comes when Jesus Christ one day submits to the Father's will, takes the scroll from the Father's hand, and thereby takes back the earth as his rightful possession. In mercy, Christ will gradually tighten the screws of justice upon the earth, but in fulfillment to prophecy, he will pour out the wrath of God, and he will win the earth for himself. In Revelation 19, we saw Christ. In two ways, young people, we saw him seated on a white horse and wielding a sharp sword. That is to say, he descends from heaven to make war. And he's victorious. In chapter 20, Christ the conqueror makes changes in the government of the world. Christ is going to reign upon the earth for a thousand years. Look with me at the end of Revelation 20, verse 6. The Bible says, And they will reign with him, they'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. And Isaiah the prophet foretold this when he said, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice, Isaiah 32, verse 1. And this is what heaven sang in anticipation when Christ took the scroll from the Father, back in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Heaven sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And hear what they said of what would happen in the future. And they shall reign on the earth. You see, at this point in the book of Revelation, in the At this point in the book of prophecy of future imperative events here, Christ has come and he has conquered. And now we see the results of his great conquest. We'll begin to see what happens when heaven's kingdom comes to earth, when Christ's outside dominion becomes an on-site dominion. What Christ is going to do We're going to consider the first six verses of this chapter and leave the rest for next week. What Christ is going to do is reorganize the world's government. He's going to arrange a blessed state upon the earth for a thousand years. And to understand this more simply, it's going to be through subtraction and addition. Just like what happens when there's a change in government with a new U.S. president. When the new president becomes president, He chooses those who he's going to work with. And he gets rid of those who worked with the previous president. So what we find here is that Christ is going to reign without Satan's evil influence for a thousand years. There's the subtraction. And Christ will reign with the saints for a thousand years. There's the addition. 
So two portions of the first portion of this chapter, verses 1 through 6. Christ is going to reorganize the world's government. And that begins by Christ reigning without Satan's evil influence for a thousand years. That's verses 1 through 3. Say, how is Christ going to do that? How is he going to get rid of Satan from the earth? Well, Christ is going to commission an angel to imprison Satan in the abyss. There are some verses of the Bible that you should recite and read loudly. This is one of those passages. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the abyss and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him. That's great. That's great. Christ will restrict evil's influence. Satan is going to be relegated to the abyss for a long time. He's going to be imprisoned. And the reason I say it's a prison because of what we read in verse 7. It says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, just think with me for a moment about the geography of Satan's activity. Throughout the scripture, we see Satan active on the earth. He's like a roaring lion walking to and fro, seeking one to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. But we also see Satan active in heaven before God. That's what we saw in Job chapter 1, where he accused Job before God. And at some future point, probably in the midst of the tribulation, Satan will be thrown down from heaven to the earth so that he may no longer accuse the saints before God. That is to say, at that point, he will no longer have access to heaven. It will only be to the earth. And when Christ returns to the earth and sets up his kingdom, an angel will come down from heaven to remove Satan from the earth and put him into the abyss where he will be bound in chains. So you see how Satan and his activity have gone from heaven to earth to the abyss. Now we wonder, how is it that Satan, who's a fallen angel, a spirit being, how can he be bound with a chain? How can he be shut up in prison? Well, how can angels go to war in heaven? Or how can they be confined to the abyss? Or how can they be thrown down to the earth? Okay, we might not understand all of these things that we don't readily see before us. We might not understand how angels who don't have bodies can go to war or be thrown down to the earth or bound with a chain or locked up in a prison. But the text says all these things. So I'd encourage you to believe all of them. Satan will be imprisoned. And the result of his imprisonment will be that his deceptive evil influence will be restricted. Look at the end of verse 3. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. You see, just as imprisoning a thief will stop him from stealing, so imprisoning Satan will keep him from doing what he has been doing so successfully. This book talks about Satan in terms of being the deceiver of the whole world, chapter 12, verse 9. Satan twists the truth so that people believe a lie. That's Satan. 
and he's been doing so throughout human history. Young people, the Bible talks about Satan being an ancient serpent. Do you remember the story of that ancient serpent all the way back in the Garden of Eden? It was Satan who invited Adam and Eve to eat from that one tree that God had said no about. God had given them every other tree in the garden except one. And God had told them if they eat of that one tree, they would die. And Satan said, that's not true. He tempted them by getting them to think that God was holding back something good from them. Satan lied. And it's just like Satan to lie. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, You're of your father the devil, and your will is to do his, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So when you think of Satan, think this. He's the one who lies. He attacks what God says because what God says is the truth. And Satan has been deceiving people with lies ever since the garden. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He deceives. He lies. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. What that shows us is that the servants of Satan often disguise themselves as followers of Christ. In that context, those were false teachers in the church who were purposefully teaching what was contrary to God's Word. They were lying. Now, some of you may be aware of the interpretation that this binding of Satan was the fact that God made Satan unable to hold back the advance of the gospel. The binding of Satan means that Satan can no longer stop the gospel from going forward. I want you to consider two passages on that. First, consider what Jesus said in the parable of the sower, and then what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. First, when Jesus spoke the parable of the sower, he talked about the seed that fell on the road. In Matthew 13, 19, it says this, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So Christ taught that Satan snatches away gospel seeds. When people hear the gospel, Satan works to remove it. That's what Jesus taught. Second, Paul said this about the gospel ministry. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan blinds people to the truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ can rid people of their sin that separates them from God. Christ can rid people of their sin And Satan blinds people to that, blinds them to the gospel. So Jesus and Paul, they didn't teach that Satan was bound in such a way that he could no longer hold back the gospel. Instead, they taught that 
Satan actively opposes the gospel and gospel ministry. Satan opposes the gospel today. But the point of this text is that he will not be able to do that when Christ comes and rules and reigns on the earth. The God of this world will be succeeded by Jesus Christ. And I need you to appreciate how large of a change that's going to be. That is huge. For thousands of years, Satan has been lying, deceiving the whole world. Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus these words in chapter 2 of Ephesians, You once walked in sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in. He is energizing the sons of disobedience. I say that because I want us to consider the devastating work of Satan through the centuries and the millenniums. But we should never set Satan on par with God as if Satan were an all-powerful being. He is not. Satan is no match for God. And that's because Satan is a created being and God is not. So what we find here is that with great ease, Jesus Christ is going to displace the God of this world for a thousand years. During that time, preachers, podcasts, and radio broadcasters are not going to be talking about the enemy. He's not going to be roaming about. He's not going to be blinding people to the gospel. It will be a new day, and Christ is going to restrict evil influences. But afterward, verse 3, Christ will allow evil influences. Satan is going to be released from the abyss for a short time. Look at verse 3. After that, that's a thousand years, after that, he must be released for a little time. This is one of those places where you want to scratch your head. Why? Why is it necessary that he be released? I mean, is, is Satan, is he going to be reformed? Is his prison time going to prove remedial? No. (laughs) Satan does not have redemption in his future at all. Instead, mankind's condition, apart from Satan's influence, is going to be revealed by their response to Satan's release. That's going to come up next week. But for now, we need to rest in the thought that Christ will reign And he will manage evil as he sees fit for his own purposes. And wonderfully, what he's going to do is remove Satan when he comes and sets up his earthly government. That's the subtraction. Now let's consider the addition in the world's government. Verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6, we see that Christ will reign with the saints for a thousand years. He's going to commission the saints to oversee the earth. Look at the end of verse 6. They will reign with him for a thousand years. And a lot of scripture has pointed forward to this event. Daniel the prophet foretold in Daniel 7.27, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Jesus said in the Gospels, Matthew 19.28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you who followed me will also sit 
on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the apostles taught 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. This is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul asks rhetorically, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The assumption is everyone knows that the saints will judge the world when Christ returns. And he made an application in 1 Corinthians 6 there. And then we come even to the book of Revelation. And Jesus promises to the churches of Asia Minor, chapter 3, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That is a promise that Christ held forward in the future to the churches of Asia Minor. And then even heaven sings about this in anticipation when Christ takes the scroll. They know what's going to happen when Christ does this and when he begins this work of reclaiming the earth. They say, chapter 5, verse 10, you made them a kingdom, of, a kingdom and priests to God. This is what's going to happen. And they shall reign. Where? On the earth. Heaven sings about the future earthly reign of Jesus Christ. And it says six times in this passage, Revelation 20, that it will last for a thousand years. This is what we refer to as the millennium. And unlike the norm of today in the millennium, the righteous are going to govern. The righteous are going to be governing. Look at verse 4. The end of it says they'll come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. That is to say that some of the dead are going to come to life and enjoy Christ's reign. It's not that the righteous are simply going to be part of Christ's kingdom. They will be in places of responsibility. Look at the beginning of verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So what's that about? During the millennium, Christ is going to fill the government with the righteous, just as the U.S. president fills his cabinet with his selections. Now, who's going to become government officials in Christ's kingdom? Well, there are two groups of people that make up that government. We see them in verse 4. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So two groups. The first is those who are seated on thrones. The second are those who died following Christ in those final years of Satan's reign. They're the saints. They're regenerate people who have physically died. For some, they were beheaded. They're saints who have physically died before or during the tribulation who are now raised from the dead. See how it's described in verses 5 and 6. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Those who are raised in this first resurrection are holy. This is not the resurrection of the wicked. 
And this is showing us that the Old Testament and the New Testament saints who sleep in the dust are raised to meet the Lord, along with all those who are still alive at the coming of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4. Then we have the tribulation. And of course, those details aren't all part of this book of the Revelation, but that helps us understand who are the people who are sitting on those thrones. Those are the people who have already been raised. At the close of the tribulation, those who have died following Christ, they're going to be raised. So all who died following Christ will be raised and will reign with Christ. So that's, that's just fascinating. The righteous are going to govern. And I've always thought, who is it that they're going to govern? I mean, who, if there's going to be a kingdom, who are the subjects of the kingdom? Well, systematic theology gives us an answer to this. It's going to be those who followed Christ and lived through the tribulation. In other words, people are going to get saved in the midst of the tribulation, and they're not going to die for Christ's sake in the midst of the tribulation. They're going to live through it. They'll be alive when Christ comes to make war, and they'll continue to live. So they're, they're not going to be raised because they never died. So that means they're going to enter the millennium with the normal bodies. They're going to be able to have children. They must be able to build the population of Christ's earthly kingdom. It's going to grow. But even as you think about that, it's going to be a growth without the evil influence of Satan. It's going to be under the government of the righteous. It's going to be under the government of Christ and his saints who are ruling with him. This will be a blessed condition. The righteous are blessed to enjoy this reign with Christ, and they're going to escape the second death. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, over the folks in the first resurrection, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ. You say, well, what is the second death? It's stated in such a way that we're supposed to fear it. We're supposed to think, I'm glad I'm not partaking in that. I'm not sharing in that. What is it, though? Drop down to verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death is the lake of fire, the place of eternal punishment. So what Christ is promising to the the churches of Asia Minor, to those who will overcome is they're not going to be hurt by this second death. They're not going to be hurt by it. Instead, they will have the exclusive privilege of entering into the happy state of Christ's earthly kingdom. It's a blessed state with a blessed God. It's a wonderful world where Satan will be removed and Christ will reign. And that happy condition is contrasted with the wicked. Look at verse 5. The rest of the dead will not come to life until the thousand years were ended. You see, the wicked will have to wait. The righteous are going to govern, but the wicked will have to wait. 
See, all the dead are raised either in the first or the second resurrection. The first resurrection is holy, and the rest, the rest of the dead, they wait. They're not holy. Say, when will they be raised? Verse 13, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. That's the rest. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. More about that next week. But what we have, brothers and sisters, in this passage is a bit of what we can appreciate today because of COVID. We have come to realize you can do a whole lot of things remotely. I can talk to my parents. I can talk to you. We can have school just like that. We can do it. It's possible. But you know what? We really want everything to be back to normal. We want to be back to face-to-face. Even this last week, the President of the United States held out the hope that maybe in the 4th of July we can be with family and friends. See, there's a hope that there will be something in person. And Christ holds out a hope to the churches of Asia Minor. He's going to be with them one day. They will reign with Christ on the earth. You say, does Christ reign today? Absolutely He does. He reigns in heaven. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He reigns, but His reign is remote. It's outside. One day He will come and His outside dominion will become an on-site dominion. And it will be blessed. Father, we are thankful for what we read here. We have known years and decades of the rule of the God of this world and how wonderful it would be to live in the earth when he is removed and when Christ comes and reigns. Lord, you held out this great promise of an in-person meeting with Christ in the years to come. And we have that promise before our eyes as well. Lord, we pray that today we will live for Christ, even though we cannot see Him, even though His rule today is remote, one day it will be realized. And by Your grace, we will be a part of it. So Lord, help us to rejoice in anticipation, even as heaven sings above, in anticipation of that great and wonderful day when Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years and will be a part of it. We praise you for that and your kindness to us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.